0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to the Feeling Film Podcast, where we get together weekly for a fun, emotional, focused, and sometimes insightful in-depth movie conversation. Pun intended. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, aqua, whatever, anything water-related, hello. <laughs> Plenty Ahoy? of water-related talk Ahoy. to come. boy, Yeah. Ahoy. yeah. That's, that's Let me good. take a
0: drink over here the, to get ready. That's fun. Go ahead. There you go.
1: It's hydrate, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Lots of hydration. There it is. Lots of hydration. Well, the wait is over. And after 13 years, we finally returned to Pandora this week for James Cameron's first of many planned Avatar sequels. Was it worth the time and money spent on technical upgrades? Does this story hold water? Pun intended again. Consider this your spoiler warning because we are diving deep, pun intended again again, into Avatar, the Way of Water, starting right now. You can expect many, many more puns. That's your first big spoiler. <laughs> That's <what's gonna> happen. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry. We're a bit out of it. I'm a bit out of it today. It This is the first week end of vacation for me. So we are embarking now on two weeks of just complete relaxation. I think you're off as well. Am I right?
0: I am. I am. I'm off for the next two weeks, much to my wife and son's enjoyment because they're off as well. And I am grateful to have a company that takes off like they shut down just by default from Christmas Eve to New Year's Day. And so I took the week before that off because I had vacation to burn. So yes, I am two weeks full of nothing but Christmas movies the first week and getting crap done the second because I can't sit down. Like even today, I spent pretty much most of the afternoon in my backyard blowing leaves, raking leaves, spitting on leaves, cursing leaves, doing whatever I could <laughs> to get the leaves in bags and me out of the backyard because it's no secret locally that yard work is not my favorite. I would rather live in water because there's far less maintenance. And you know, if I could, we'd move to a town home with three bedrooms and just give my wife a garden because just yard work is stupid. Anyway, sorry, that's a Different topic for maybe a completely different podcast, but yes, I'm excited about the next two weeks off. It'll be out of my rhythm, but I'm trying to create rhythm so that I can be focused for things
1: like this. Good, good deal. Sounds to me like you're basically a, a copy of the humans on Pandora, in that you hate nature and just want it see. to see it destroyed. Is that where I'm going with this?
0: Call me Sky People. Call me Sky People without the great tech. <laughs> sky That's all I am, People, really.
1: just call me sky people
0: that's my new name oh
1: man there you go patrick (laughs) patch sky person i don't know anyway
0: sp sky people that's (laughs) patrick i like it
1: (laughs) i like it well to get into this we have covered avatar before i did not do my homework enough to go back and find out what episode that was but it's in our catalog listeners so if you would love to hear us talk about the first film by means go back and do so we're both fans of it i think we had a jim cameron month where we went through all of his films we did Yeah. we are big subscribers to the idea that he does not make bad movies and i would say that has held up just fine with this newest one <laughs> he, he doesn't miss he had three it's hours to prove us wrong <laughs>
0: So if he was going to screw up, he had enough time to do it.
1: <laughs> I got to ask you, did you have to go to the bathroom <laughs> or did you make it?
0: I went Saturday morning
1: <laughs> at nine o'clock
0: to the bathroom. So, okay. No, well, I <laughs> did that at nine yeah. at eight 50. I did that. at it. I, I went to the bathroom. I sat down. I did not have to go. I thought that I heard when I was getting my digital ticket scanned The people in front of us, I thought I heard the kiosk person say there'll be a twenty minute intermission. I thought he I don't know if I heard that misheard that or if he was just joking with them, but that did not come. (laughs) And I was fine with that because I was pretty immersed in the in the story as a whole. I I wouldn't have minded it. I mean, it makes sense. This is this is long. I mean it's three hours and ten minutes. That's that's really, really pushing the envelope in terms of just getting your your film's worth, but no, I did not have to go to the bathroom. I made sure that I was uh, not hydrated until one o'clock when I got out of the theater. Oh my gosh, like almost four hours in the theater—that's just crazy. That could have been a double feature for for most people, but um, but no, I mean it. It, it held my attention. I, I did never have to think about having to leave. Uh, at one point, I did check my watch to see you know where are we at in this, and uh, I'd gotten through the first two hours and I'm like wow, that was really well paced. So let's. Finish the strong, Jim, and uh, you know I think you did. I think you did finish it strong for me.
1: Yeah, the last hour is nonstop and extremely fast-paced, extremely action-heavy and propulsive. And there's no issues. I don't think once you get to that last hour, the first two kind of wanes at times. It, it comes and it goes. It's a little bit quieter in spots. There's a little more dialogue and backstory and character development and all of those things, and less big action moments. They're sprinkled in, of course. But yeah, I I always forget that people like you, (laughs) normal people, have all this extra time tacked on to your movie experience because we don't do previews. We don't do trailers or any of that fun extra stuff before a press screening. So if it's, you know, three hours and I'm leaving right after that first animated bit of credits i'm i'm out of there so i was yeah know, three hours boom we started right on time seven o'clock and then i'm out the door so well when you say i'll, I'll tell you see yeah. over four hours that's a lot
0: it is but it's worth it if the trailers that are showing i try to get past maria menudos and nuvi and all that craziness and hit it right at three ten or whatever nine ten whatever the the show time starts but we got bar- the barbie teaser which is fantastic we got the full Spider-Verse trailer, which I'm so psyched about. And we got Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny, along with you know a handful of others. But those were the three, and I was like, this is good. This is a good set of trailers. i had seen all three of them, but it's great to see them. RPX, big screen. Oh, and we got to see the, the Mario Brothers trailer, which I- I'll tell you, the teaser for it did not have me. I was like, eh, okay, whatever. The full trailer... Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of into it, and I think Carson's gonna be into it too, so that'll be one that we go check out for sure next year. But all four of those were great trailers and I was glad to be there for the first twenty minutes before we actually hit hit the pool or hit the water, hit the ocean, whatever we're hitting on Pandora.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping I get that Mario trailer on my next viewing, uh, tomorrow that I'm taking my son to. I would love to see it on a big screen because it was a lot of fun. But anyway, back to the movie at hand so the question was could he pull it off the criticisms of avatar have been largely by people not us we don't have a huge problem with these things but some have called it in it's storytelling as in oh it's just dances with wolves or pocahontas only with blue people on a different planet or Oh, Jim Cameron can't write. The narrative is absolutely horrible. The script and the dialogue are, you know, terrible and wooden. The action, I don't think I've ever heard anybody criticize (laughs) the tech, the look of the film, the 3D nature of it, the visual style. Did it all work for you in Avatar The Way of Water? Where do you overall kind of land with it? As it compares to the previous movie, well, I have a lot of thoughts, and I'll try to
0: not make this monologue esque or at least soapboxy. When you we'll have get three to hours it. to play, okay, when you have three hours to play with, there's a lot in here, and I said that to you offline that Jim Cameron knows how to pack a lot into his movies. It was all pretty cohesive. It didn't feel like we're getting 18 different stories. It did feel like we were getting more than just one or two, and. Being able to thread those together, I think, is the biggest challenge. I think he did that really well. In terms of the criticism, what I thought this sequel did really well was it took the original and it expanded it. I do remember us having a great conversation in our episode about how, what do we want from the sequels? And I don't know if it was you or me, but we both agreed that we want to explore Pandora. So Pandora is this planetary thing. It's a planet or it's a system. I don't know. I think it's a planet. But The Na'vi were who we focused on in the first movie. And so when we get Sully and his family going to a new people who are slightly a different color, they're green, greenish in the same kind of hue of of color, the color wheel. This is what I wanted. I wanted expansion of a culture, expansion of a mythology as someone who is not big on epic fantasy necessarily, especially like the medieval, the Warcrafts. Um, Lord of the Rings is kind of my limit in terms of the the greatness of things, the spectacle and the and just the the wow factor. The way of water had an ability to make me care about things that do not exist in real life. There were moments, Aaron, where I was picking at my fingers. I was like nervously biting my nails because I didn't want to A creature to get killed. I did not want to see a people group that doesn't exist in real life get their village burned down by some psychopath dressed as a Navi. That's what I think the success of this movie was for me in terms of it being really enjoyable, is the ability to introduce and make me care about people. And I say people in the, you know, in the air quote sense because they're not people, (laughs) they're sky people. And then there's the Navi, and then there's the water people. I, I don't. There's so many
1: names that I. I they're Navi. I have trouble. The, the water people are Navi. Are they? So they, okay. Yeah, they're they're all Navi. There's forest Navi, and then there's water Navi, and there's probably like lava and mountain Navi, and whatever you know, tundra Navi somewhere. Uh, they are the okay. met, Meta Metai I believe is. So that's what I was trying to figure out is I
0: thought Navi was the forest people and Metakai was the, the water people, but they were all residents or the equivalent to humans on earth. These are the equivalents of the humans on Pandora. Like they all share this tint of a color, the big eyes, the ears, the tails, the three or four digits total, three fingers and one thumb. But they differentiate in terms of: Are you from Europe? Are you from Africa? Are you from you know South Africa, South America? So that's kind of what I was thinking: is that the Navi were like the Europeans, and these other people were the you know other. But if they're all Navi, I guess that makes sense too. That they're describing it as all of like the human type thing. So my mythology might be screwed up. So I'm actually clarifying. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. We are all the human race. I think there's a song that we are. I don't know. But it's, uh, yeah, we're the human race or they're they're the Navi race. And it's just a difference of clan based on where they live. Now, what I couldn't ever really get comfortable with is like, what are we only <laughs> this is part of world building difficulties, because you and you only have one movie and you introduce them to us as the Navi. That's who they are to us. So In reality, they would be the something clan, but the Na'vi wouldn't be the thing we refer to them as, right? And so it does get kind of confusing at times. But like you were saying, I think one of the strengths is introducing us to more of them, right? Like expanding the breadth of what peoples live on Pandora, what it's like for other groups of people. For me, that was a big highlight. I personally had some hit and miss reactions to the depictions. There's a big part of me, Patrick, that that really loves the overarching story here, if you were to say outline what is going to take place from point A, point B, from a from an event standpoint, from a like This is the character relationship that's going to be explored, and here is the result of where these characters are going to end up emotionally. The execution of getting from and through these plot lines, I did sometimes have a little bit of a I don't know what the right word is, but there just comes a point when you start to wonder about the script, and you either Accept it for the corniness that it brings, or you see that as a bit of a, a turnoff? I mostly have always accepted anything Cameron's written, uh, the first film, this film. I don't mind any of the macho military talk because I, I get it. It feels caricaturish in a realistic way. Like it's exaggerative, but it's not like unbelievable. But man, if I had to hear bro one more time from a Na'vi kid talking to another Na'vi kid, it just kind of started to take me out of it because it made me feel like I was in a modern setting, like in a modern earthly type of setting because that felt like slang that wouldn't be on this other planet, especially when it was between kids that had never lived on the planet earth and learned that slang through experience. It just kind of was like, okay, come on, Jim, like this is a little lazy and goofy. So there were moments like that, that were briefly hindrances for me. But overall, I just love the way that the characters were developed. And the fact that almost everybody got some sort of a journey that took them to a place of growth. Yeah. Yeah. I I jokingly said
0: that the title of this movie should have been Avatar, the the Sully family adventures, because this is really what drove most of the narrative. Each child had their own little mini adventure that all led back to it's all about family. So we got a little Fast and Furious going on here to the point you were making about the dialogue. What I would interpret that as I didn't have an issue with it because when we get to the very beginning. This is something that I've talked about with with Adam on AOS, which is the way in which you have dialogue that flows from a native language into English because of the audience that's watching your movie. I think it's *Hunt for Red October. You have Sean Connery is speaking Russian, and then it the camera pans in, and then he co- it comes out, and he's now speaking English. We assume that everything we hear that he's saying in English is what's being said in his head. Same thing with Chernobyl. The, one of the big question marks was, why do none of these people in the miniseries Chernobyl have any kind of either Russian accents, or they're not speaking Russian? Well, they wouldn't have Russian accents, because <laughs> they're living in Russia. They're not going to be speaking English. But The intent is that we're getting in the heads of these characters. And while I agree that we're living in a fantasy world with a non-human race, how in the world would they know phrases like bro? I'm glad that Jim Cameron did not lean into using further slang that's going to date his movies. What I think we were getting at is that we needed to be introduced to these adolescents, these teenagers, and the way in which... I think he thought best from a writing standpoint is to insert dialogue. That's going to feel teenage esque Otherwise, not only are you creating a language itself that you're putting in a nice little papyrus font in subtitles when it's being used, but you're also now having to, on top of that, create a dialect. That's going to reflect teenage language. Like what does not teenage language look like? Well, you could create it. But would it feel believable to a modern audience? And I think that's a struggle that you probably have as a writer is how do you connect with an audience to allow them to get past blue people and feel like they're looking at children of fathers and sons or fathers and mothers. And I think that's what his intent was. And that's why it didn't bother me because I wanted to believe by the end of the movie that this was the Sully family, not Navi people with one guy being an avatar at one point and then eventually becoming you know, part, partly or fully Navi. So that was established in the first movie. Here, the intent was, let's really dig into connecting with this family. And I thought that kind of dialogue was fitting for reflecting a teenage attitude.
1: Yeah. I mean, it. you're not wrong. It definitely laid them out as teenagers <laughs> and they had the qualities for better and worse. But I mean, you know, like you're saying, You need that. And as I mentioned, you know, everybody goes on that journey of growth and so they have to start somewhere to get somewhere. And I loved watching this and immediately as I was watching it, thinking back to the conversation that we had had just a couple of days previously when I saw this movie, but even just, you know, going by right now, a week ago today about fathers and sons in Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio and how the relationships were portrayed and and what it meant to that story. And then here we have this same thing again. We have Jake's relationship with his son Netayim, who is the eldest, who very clearly wants to impress his father, wants to follow in his father's footsteps. He's a yes man. Like he talks in military speak like Jake. He says, yes, sir, and such. Then we have his younger son and his relationship with him, Loak, who is the typical mischievous, but not in a in a negative way really, but more in an adventurous way, and always wants to push the envelope, wants to explore, uh, wants to go out and see things and do things and and not take anyone's word for it and experience those things for himself. And then we have the Metcayen clan leader, uh, Tonawari, who has his relationship with his sons, which is briefly explored. It's a little bit different and they don't go deeply into that, but you can kind of get a glimpse of his parenting style as it's contrasted against Jake's when the boys get into it, you know, uh, and have to come before the dads. And then we have the mind blowing uh, storyline that I did not know was going to be part of this movie. I don't know if it was any of the trailers, but I I didn't have any idea this was going to happen. Like I knew Colonel Quaritch was coming back, which is awesome, by the way, just we can talk more about him. But I just think that having Stephen Lang reprise that role and bringing him back the way they did as a clone in an avid, I think it's brilliant. And to make it where you have this idea of a man who has the memories and the feelings of someone that's, not him, but that was him. And so he hasn't had them firsthand and he can just barely make that distinction out while also acknowledging that he has these memories and then having to understand that he has this son that exists on this planet that he hasn't seen in over a decade and how that progresses through the story. It was fascinating to me. Um, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I think... I was really drawn to that one. We can talk about all of them here, but I found that really intriguing because this version of Quaritch is different. And so we have to remember that. Do we know if the other Quaritch would have reacted in the same way that this one did? Maybe. I don't know. But this guy has the ability to, when it came down to it, you know, when Neytiri has Spider by the throat and is ready to make that trade. And she's like, "If you kill mine, I'm killing yours." He lets go, and and I don't I felt like that wasn't something that Colonel Quaritch might have done the the one from the first movie, but that because this is a different character, because it's someone who is who has the ability to change. I just thought that was a, an awesome inclusion and frankly i didn't really love the character of spider i didn't have any problem with the portrayal of him but like it felt weird to me to have this random little human running around because this movie was so navi focus that it was getting away from the humans and then we still have this one little bitty guy just like popping in and out all over the place it's very weird at times and awkward like an eyesore but right? i like where it it was but i like where it left us because it got emotional, man. And it it hit me to the point where, you know, he goes back to save this man. And again, it's very similar for spider where he doesn't have these memories. He just has the knowledge that that guy is a father. Like there's no actual connection there of being raised by that person, but there's just this, this sense, this innate, like I would I would say biological but it's not it's like an, because he's a clone but it's like an innate feeling of a bond to this person and so he saves his life but then he leaves him and I loved that because I think it showed me what Cameron is talking about when he says he's planned this thing out like this is an epic right this is going to go avatar 4 5 6 whatever however many he's got this is the kind of long Game storyline that will pay off in such a huge way more and more as it goes. Because I think you end up having a villain that has the potential to make a turn, right? And become an ally at some point. And maybe he becomes a dad. Maybe he has a tragic end after he becomes a dad. I don't know. But like, I just really enjoyed the inclusion of that particular father and son relationship and how it went from being, I don't really care about you because we've never lived together and you're nothing to me to there's something in my spirit that says I should be protective of you. And, and I, I'm just, I'm acting on instinct based on that. And I think there's something beautiful about that.
0: Yeah. I didn't, I didn't gravitate toward it. Like you did. It was, it was hard for me to really connect the, those two in terms of their relationship. We got some of the formulaic, like spiders, like heismaning him until he eventually captures one of the, the flying creatures. And I think he has some respect there and then they're bonding. And then he sees kind of what a cruel man he is or Navi, not man. And what, what I liked was that end where he rescues him, but refuses to go with him because in some stories he rescues him and then he makes a choice. And I thought in my head, okay, he's going to go with him. And then avatar, Three is going to be him being sort of brainwashed by this guy. And then they're going to have some kind of falling out because it's going to come down to one family versus another. And that may still happen. So when I, when I watch this relationship, what attracts me to it is the one that attracts me to Kiri's relationship with her mother, Sigourney Weaver's character, the mystery of who is the father. And I think with Spider, he knows who the father is, but he's asking more of a philosophical question. Who is my father? Is, could this Navi avatar be my father? In fact, the truth is, it's he's not an avatar anymore. I mean, I guess we need to establish that, that he came back as a clone, but he's now permanently in that body. It's not like he can be cloned. You know, his, he has a cloned human body. So he's... He's not Na'vi fully, but he's beyond an avatar. But I think it's easy enough to say, yeah, he's he's an avatar. And there's a little bit of philosophical interest there because you have Spider who is frustrated at being human. He says at one point in the movie, he's in the lab with some of the Na'vi and he he's jealous because they can breathe his air for long periods of time. And if he takes his mask off, boom, it's probably like, you know, total recall. Whereas I start bulging out like he's on Mars or something. But I think the same thing applies for him looking at his potential dad here. And I'm hoping that there's some kind of like dialogue where you have the advantages of the thing that I want and they were handed to you. And you look at that and then you look at Kiri, who is trying to figure herself out in relationship to, she knows who her mother is, she doesn't know who her father is and we don't get that, we don't get that question answered. But she's trying to find her own place in this. She's trying to find what is her purpose. And I think overall, what Cameron does really well in this movie is he expands this universe with characters that have their own journey that necessitate eh, or would justify having multiple sequels at two and a half, three hours plus because we now have a grander adventure one thing that frustrates me is the sky people. I really don't want to see more sky people. I thought it made for good theater and a great sequence where they're going after this whale-like creature. I'm sorry that I can't remember the names, but they extract the serum and, and all this stuff, and it's, you know it stops the aging process. So what I see Cameron doing here, this is a, frustra- a small frustration I have with this movie, is that he's starting so many things. And I know that he can land the plane, but he's going to be doing it over like 10 years. And I might get bored with some stories. And one of the things I don't want any more of is Sky People, because that was the crux of the first movie. And now the Sky People have come back and they're bigger and badder. And I really just want a Navi-centric story where we don't have to deal with the human race. And that's not... crapping on my humanity it's just that if you want me to be immersed in this world don't show me a conflict with the people that i'm familiar with to give me references to dances with wolves or give me references to pocahontas because that's what i think the strength of this sequel is is that it wasn't about the sky people taking over again it started that way and i think that conflict is still there because i believe one of the sky people like one of the leaders said we gotta take out Sully before we can take over Pandora. You know, part two. I just that 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 didn't that didn't sit well with me because I thought there was more interest in these other things, in the philosophical, in the the spiritual, the things that were really interesting. By the end, I was like, oh yeah, sky people are trying to take over Pandora. Yeah, I forgot about that, <laughs> and I'm kind of left going, can we kind of just keep forgetting about that because that's not really of interest to me.
1: That's fair, I think, and you're absolutely right. So what she says is that this time they are coming to colonize. So before it was a small contingent coming from Earth and they were just mining for resources. And in this version, you know, over a decade later, basically Earth is is going to the pot and they're ready to come now and literally take over and colonize the planet. Like that's their goal is to move earth to pandora and so it's a much bigger thing that's going to be happening i think that is going to be the issue of the whole line of avatar movies the the big like plot line right and i would only say that i would i don't want to know that i disagree with you but i i don't think i have an issue with it because there has to be a conflict and so I don't know at this point what other kind of major conflict you have. Now, what I suspect is since we know he's got like these things planned out through Avatar 8, I believe, that's a lot of time. So if your long eight movie game is in game is the the dealing with the colonization of the planet, then what happens is each individual movie becomes something much with a smaller conflict, right? Like in this one, it's Korich trying to hunt down Sully and get revenge. And that just exists largely to push Sully and that family into this new location (laughs) so that we can explore it, right? So that we can meet more Na'vi and learn about a whole different environment and all these new animals and the water and all these things. So something has to continually push us to learn more about Pandora. But they have to be smaller conflicts. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point there is an internal conflict as well. Uh, I mean, if we're going to like use actual American or Earth history as a model, that's exactly what happened to the Native Americans, right? Like at some point, the sky people will make allies out of some tribe and then you're going to have navi on navi violence which is going to be painful to watch i think and so i fully suspect that will happen as well but i yeah i don't think you're ever going to get just like here's the world of pandora and the new conflict is yeah i I don't know no i i get that and i or something
0: (laughs) no right I, i think i think it's more it's more about the fact that i can respect cameron for world building effectively and for again allowing me to care about a a an indigenous people that is fantasy i i don't i don't feel much when an ewok gets shot <laughs> i don't i don't feel much when i see a, a dwarf get killed at the hands of of some more powerful being there were moments and this is a credit to great, to great filmmaking not through dialogue necessarily but just the great sequences and visual effects which i think is just you can't deny it's top notch and I think that it's really important to be able to take the sum of the parts and say that the whole is good because nobody would ever say that Jim Cameron cheap, is cheap on VFX. No, he's not. It's a beautiful film. And I think we've said in the past about some some anime features that we like, you know, any still is a background image for our computer because it's just really, it's really good. But the way in which he allows his digital creations to emote, like seeing the eyes of these creatures that can't talk, that have just noises, like the, the equivalent to a whale. You want to care about those. You want to care about creatures that you can't understand, but you see their body language sort of emulating the sense of pain or love or things like that. And so when I think about the sky people, what I don't want is just they're the enemy if that's the overarching kind of thing that's happening and you have these internal conflicts happening over the, over the course of four or five movies, I'm okay with that because I understand that you have to have some kind of connection. You have to have some kind of way in. And I also, I just, I don't want clones of former cast members if I can help it because that just then becomes, it cheapens a death. And I was I was a little bit miffed at first when Quaritch came back. I was like, oh, is this what we're going to do? We're going to like, okay, we get, we care about a human. We'll kill him, and then we'll just bring him back as a clone later on. No, I, I hope that's not the case. And his character worked. Like, he's a fantastic character. I love that he didn't die. I love that we're going to see him for at least a third movie. But I just, I want to care about the world of Pandora If it means injecting humanity in there as a way to sort of poke the bear a little bit to create internal conflicts, to show some of these alliances with humans, as we sort of started to hint at, fine. I just don't want it to be, that's the thing that's driving every movie, because I've seen that, and I don't need to hate on humanity anymore than the world is causing me to right now. The fact is, we can enjoy the world of Pandora without humans screwing it up. Let them screw it up to a point where it kind of sets a domino effect in motion, but don't let them be the main cause and don't let them be the main crux of
1: each movie because that can get old really quickly. Yeah, I, I get that. I do. I I do think it, yes, I think it could get old really quickly as well. I, it did not get old for me in this one, largely because I think they were used sparingly enough to make it. Exactly. I liked the balance here. It was good. And I liked the new tech. So so Cameron is obviously has a gun fetish and we know this as much as he has an ocean fetish and apparently now a whale fetish, uh, but he is all about the action, the explosions. He shoots it in a way that very few directors are able to shoot it. It is so good, so engaging, so awesome, and they upped the ante when it came to the technology so one of the cool things in the first movie was not just the avatar the Mm -hmm. science side of going in the avatar body but you had the military side with the cool mechs that they would operate and the way that the, the planes worked right with their their hover abilities and such and now we got not only the normal mechs making a return we got this super cool like skinny fast mech did you like that was so cool to me Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i love that
1: it was like oh it was awesome uh really thin looking and obviously nimble and and mobile and then i love the scene with when we're introduced to the, the female commander when she's sitting there and it just looks so wild to me when you're like watching someone drink a cup of coffee right and you're you're seeing her do this with her hand. She's moving her hand, but there's nothing in it. But the, the robot's arm is holding it out further. And then yeah. the coffee is, I just can't, my brain, I don't know if the signal from my brain would allow me to understand what was <laughs> happening. You know, it would feel very yeah. weird. Well, and it. I think what
0: amplifies that is her stature as a human. Like she's little, she's not very big at all. So to see her in these like sleek, thin mech suits And the way in which he's able to maneuver is fantastic. I also enjoyed all the marine biology weaponry and vehicles. I thought those were kind of cool. It's almost, Aaron, as if he basically said, okay, let me take Terminator 2. Let me take the Abyss. Let me take aliens. And let's let's really just kind of modernize all of those machines and weaponry. Because I saw that. I saw iterations an iterative version of the mech suit that we see in aliens i saw an iterative version of the little uh shuttle the aqua shuttle that some of these guys were riding around it i mean this was in this was in the abyss you know with the you know holding off the 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 arms and stuff like that i mean all of this stuff i think is is iterations on what he has created before but now he gets to use both visual and practical effects that are of today's standards to really make those things look amazing and 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 really be functional as well. I mean this is kinda like this is kind of like the iPhone where you have function and form sort of married together. It doesn't just look clunky but works. It doesn't just look amazing but stinks at mechanically. This is all that put together. And I thought that there were parts where I was like. I think these could exist in real life today, which is why, you know, it's a good reason why he's able to let the tech update, let the software update, the hardware update so that he can feel more as if like this would happen in 2022. Like if we went exploring and we found a planet, it wouldn't surprise me if the military arm of our world had some of this stuff already in its pockets, ready to kind of take a deep dive, pun intended,
1: into a new world of discovery. I believe that James Cameron has these things. I mean, the man has been in a mini personal submersible submarine thing and gone down to see the Titanic wreck his own personal self. So I want to believe that yes, somewhere in his like compound or house or whatever over in New Zealand, that there is an actual warehouse where he has a personal version of this like crab neck, because that was just one of the most cool things I've seen in a movie. I don't get, astounded by stuff much anymore. I feel like the the creativity has become not I don't it feels bad to say stagnated, but when you see something like this, it just makes the rest of like a Marvel movie seem it makes a repetition stand out, right? When you have seen those storylines repeated all the time, like I don't mind seeing some of the things repeated here because it's with a different IP, it's with something brand new that is not just a different character doing the same thing that, that all these others have, where it's not just another piece of tech that is red instead of purple or instead of green <laughs> with a different glow on it. Like I had never seen this crab mech. The way that they have to hunt down the toolcam with all these different ships and subs and mech and like it it's such a complicated effort. It it was awesome to see from a functional standpoint and watch it happen. Will also be emotionally at the same time painful because you don't want it to happen because you're rooting for the whale, you're the tool can. You don't want them to be caught. And Cameron has a great way of like illustrating that. He lets you enjoy the incredible technological, you know, bombast of the situation while while simultaneously never letting go of the understanding that, like that guy says. You're doing it for this. There's like one jar of brain fluid that is essentially de-aging or whatever, or stops aging. And that's the gold. And it's very blunt, but it's blunt because it's good to make that point that he's like, you don't do anything with the rest of it. This is a gigantic creature and you do nothing with any other part of this animal, you know, keeping the whole Native American, you know, theme running, but that's. A real problem, like that's gross, and that is exactly what we would do as a society. I think today, if the people in charge, if if our governments were to go and find another planet, I have no doubt that that's a very much how things would end up going because capitalism. You know, it's all about the dollar, all about the what you can sell, and and I love the marriage of the gun loving action in this but it was always grounded in the two hours of like lead up that we got emotionally with all of these characters and it made it so much more fun. So like, for example, when, when the guy who is the captain of the ship gets killed, it's super satisfying and you're Mm -hmm. rooting for it to happen. And when you hear the guy that we like, the scientist guy who has been critical of him the whole time saying, get down. Because we saw a wire coming across, your brain immediately goes, "Uh uh-oh, like he's ducking that wire. It's going to cut that guy in half. And then it doesn't. It just pins him up against the side of the boat for a second. And you're like, oh, oh. And then you get the payoff, right? Of Mm -hmm. the snap and the body flying. And then you get the arm cut off. And (laughs) it's like a (laughs) celebratory moment because we've watched him be this villain throughout and we have also through loak and his relationship with piacon the Tolkan, and and them bonding we've come to like truly care and so like it's not just a spectacle of this giant tool can spending 30 minutes on top of a big military ship flopping around literally causing destruction destruction and just i mean dude it was like somebody took their whale action figure and was like playing with their gi joes and just like that's what it looked like and it was (laughs) glorious
0: yeah that whole sequence leading up to it what i thought was fascinating emotionally and otherwise is what i think you alluded to in the fact that the dialogue we get the explanatory dialog of why it's so hard to capture these creatures tells me that these folks have been on this planet doing this for a long time which was like an aha moment and as much as i don't like the sky people angle i didn't mind this as much because it's a different angle it's not a we're colonizing or we're coming to take over your world it's we're coming to take your resources and it's a different it's a it's a it's a buy a marine biological angle, and you have these two characters, the scientist and the captain, who are working cooperatively, but are in contrast to another, to one another because of the fact that the marine biologist is out for discovery, the captain is out for blood, or in this case, brain fluid. So, when I watched that whole sequence play out, what I really thought was cool was how Cameron explains to us the process, not just that it was so complex to do, but that you didn't j- it wasn't just like pirating, like, okay, we're gonna stab the we're gonna stab the whale and just hold on tight. No, you've got to do this first, and then you have to go under and do this. They have done this long enough that they've found ways to make sure that this happens. And it doesn't happen a lot. It's not like when they called all of these uh tokun whales together, they were gonna go after all of them. No, they were strategically going to go after a mother. Because she would stay with her calf. It's it's like there's history here. There's mythology. There is a lot of stuff that we're sort of being brought into all of a sudden. And that made me feel like I was on board that ship with the water just being blown in my face and feeling sad like Spider and watching how all of this plays out. I also, from a filmmaking standpoint, enjoyed the way that a lot of the scenes were cut, how they were actually shot, where you have... Almost like there's actual drone footage, you know, zooming in here and there, kind of a military-esque, like, okay, we've, we spotted this person, we spotted this creature, we're gonna go, go after them. I have a 4K television at my house. It's been a while since I've seen RPX or what would be, I would consider called LIMAX. I, I wasn't, I don't know if this is what it's supposed to look like, but obviously it was very clean, very clear film. Um, everything felt very crisp. But it looked different than other movies that I've seen. Like it looked almost too smooth. And I don't, as someone who's naive to this, I don't know if that was a problem for me. So is that something that I just don't see often because I don't go to big screen movies or because my 4K television is not 85 inches wide
1: where I'm seeing that? Uh, Maybe you can give me some insight into it. So that's a higher frame rate. So you've heard the words HFR, high frame rate, in relation to this movie. That's what you're talking about. It is a motion smoothing process, essentially. It is, you know, you're speeding up the frames per second. It was famously done with The Hobbit films. Didn't really look that great to a lot of people in those. And then it was done a few years back in a movie called Gemini Man, which was like Will Smith versus Will Smith, a clone of himself. And it looked really freaky in that one. And it is. In this movie, a mixture of frame rates at times. And so it can be a little bit off to some people. So you're not alone. It is definitely something that a lot of folks notice. Personally, I never felt any sort of distraction from it. I did notice. I mean, it overall has a video game feel to it. And maybe that's why it didn't bother me is because it feels like you're watching a 3D video game cinematic for any time yeah. there's action on the screen. Right. Uh, and, and I just I watch a lot of video game cinematics, So I, I felt very at home with that. What? So that's what you're referring to. And, and it, it is hit and miss. Like some people will notice it and be distracted in a negative way. Some people will just notice it and they get used to it pretty quickly and have no issues. Then there's me who I just dig it. And I will say also with regards to that, like that the 3d in this was nowhere near as in your face, 3d as like even avatar was. So the gimmick of 3d has always Mm -hmm. been, what can you make your audience feel like they're reaching out to touch? I remember clearly in the first avatar movie, That scene when they're in the forest and there's a little warly gig flower plant creature things they're like zoom they like tons of them like zip up into the sky and it's dark and they're they're like pink and bright in the night those actually felt like they were coming out into the theater I I remember like wanting to like reach out and grab them there's nothing like that in this movie to me the 3D was the best I've ever seen because the whole thing just felt like I was sitting on the beach watching it happen right in front of me, but I didn't feel the need to have to touch things like there wasn't like a spear coming right at my face that I had to dodge and it's junk like that. Yeah.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. It's a passive 3D is what it is. And one of the things that I thought was really great was from the very beginning, the pan shots, not the Pandora shots, but the pan shots that we see are where I think the 3D is the most effective and subtle because Cameron uses this depth of field to give us like, Oh, here's one of those pieces of dust that's floating just right in front of me. And it's like right in my face, but, and I could reach out and touch it, but I don't want to. The action is never directed at me. Like I'm meant to react to it. It's passive. And it was immersive as opposed to being reactive. That's what I think makes 3d today more effective because when you see something in three D, you want it to immerse you. You don't want the you don't want the movie to feel like it's trying to to tell you something, or trying to make you feel like you're part of the story. Philosophically, yeah, but the fact is, we're not talking to the screen, we're not interacting with the the, the characters. I mean, the closest we got to that was Bandersnatch on Netflix, and that doesn't go over well because. The beauty of movie watching is that it's passive, but it's making us feel something active so that we can have conversations like this about a movie and say, here's how it made us feel. But in the moment, we don't want cell phones around us. We don't want people talking to us. We don't want some guy behind us laughing about something he's reading on his phone. Put that away, sir. And so I think when, you, when it comes to like the 3D aspect of it, Cameron's approach respects his audience. He says, all I want you to do is just live in this world for three hours. I don't want you to feel like, oh my gosh, they're coming after me, or (laughs) this spear is coming right at my face. No, we don't need to do that. He sees his audience as mature. He sees his audience as sophisticated. His movies are sophisticated. And so he wants those to be reflective of one another. And so I think that's why it works. I totally agree. I like that from Jaws. I like that from my Friday the 13th or, or whatever, where it's made to be a gimmick. It's made to be like, oh my gosh, we want our audience to react. No. Jim says, be immersed. Enjoy it. Be with these characters and connect to them. Don't connect to the effects, connect to the people, or in this case, the Navi.
1: Or to all things, if you have a cool tail that can plug into the <laughs> trees and the jellyfish. And what did you think about like the world itself in this one? I mean, there's definitely the tree hugger cameron at play here there's environmental messages aplenty it's all about protect the forest the seas the animals it's very princess mononoke is the thing that came to mind in how he's looking at this world that's being overtaken by modernity and how can we protect the inherent like spiritual nature of it and did you enjoy that, or did you just like it from a visual standpoint?
0: Well, it's, it's subtle. It's not as um, It's not as obvious as the first movie was, which is probably why it got the criticism that it did. I think what makes it good is the fact that it wasn't the only thing that we were looking at. It wasn't about just that. It was about what does it look like not when an indigenous people get – usurped or invaded or get cross-contaminated. I mean, that's the probably the best and worst analogy I can think of with another culture, another clan. You know, By the end of the movie, you have this set of dialogue between these two characters, these two fathers, and he tells Jake, you are one of us. You are family. And Jake says, well, this is our home now. So there's no differentiation between water people and forest people. The clan is not defined by where you live. I would say there's a there's a little bit of a small melting pot, this idea of we can learn from you, you can learn from us. There's adaptivity that that lives here. You know, Jake mentions coming from sky people to Navi, he had to adapt, he had to learn the language. And at the same time, we look at his kids his kids have adopted his military language. They say yes sir and they have the the audio necklace around their necks and they're talking about using phrases like clicks or yeah you know, words like clicks and things like that. So what I pulled from this was less about an environmental approach or this tree hugging type thing more so about this idea of what it means to adapt out of a need, what it need what it means to evolve, what it means to learn and grow, and realize that your world is changing, whether it's from an invasion of an outside people, or if it's because others that are like-minded have a different way of looking at things. This is where I think I, I think the the storyline that I connected with the most, one of two. One is Loak's connection with the, the Tokun. I thought that was a fantastic sub-story. Outsiders who are misunderstood, mm-hmm. who people don't quite understand connecting and understanding each other. That was a really fantastic um subplot there. And then you have Kiri and the mystery of her birth and her connection to Awa. That was probably the one that stood out to me the most. I don't know that I love Sigourney Weaver's voicing her at all. I, I I'm fine with her looking like Sigourney Weaver. I'm fine with that because yes hereditary. It's going to look like that, but you, you got to give me a different voice. Otherwise it just looks, it just feels weird. But apart from that, I think that's the one I'm interested in moving forward into the next movie. What does that mean for her? Why is she special? It reminded me a lot of Ellie from, uh, from the last of us and figuring out what makes her so special. You know, why is Kiri able to connect why does she have this reaction that she does? How is she able to control what she does? It's it's the mystery that we didn't know that we needed, but the one that we're glad we got. And I think those are the things that I latched onto more than anything else. Because I think the environmental stuff was already table set in the previous entry to rehash that or expand on it. It's like, yep, we've heard that story before. We've seen it in other places. That's why I feel like the sequel does a great job of recognizing the table setting but then putting the dishes down and starting to actually put the meal together in this in the second one.
1: Hey, you said that beautifully and I would just say ditto. I agree with all of that and I actually have the same criticism that's one of the few things that I didn't really care for and I did feel distracted by was Sigourney Weaver trying to play the voice of a teenager and It's an unnecessary connection that we didn't need because the story tells us who she is like right off the bat early in the movie. We know that she's Grace's kid and she has the same, like you said, digital look of a de-aged Sigourney Weaver, who is also a Navi avatar, you know, so like or whatever. So like it, it was very obvious and I think it just felt like more out of whack for me to hear her voice it just I never quite fully grew on me I'm a little nervous going forward because she doesn't have a huge role in this movie she's only there and she only talks in small little scenes here and there but I feel like she's going to be a gigantic part of this storyline as it progresses across the whole thing and you know maybe if we jump another decade or two (laughs) and then she's like more adult Sigourney it will make sense. And again and very possible that's this is what Cameron is his vision is so far out, it's hard to know that will make more sense at that point. But for this particular movie, it did kind of throw me off a little because I was like, come on, this is weird. <laughs> like we don't need you to be the exact same person. It did work for Steven Lang, you know, it did work for him, but it didn't it didn't work for her. But I love that character and that storyline and like you described it, the mystery of why is she special. And and how not only from just a curiosity standpoint as a viewer, but for that character and her own personal mental and emotional well-being of trying to understand herself and what how did she even get born? <laughs> like last we knew, Grace had died, right? And like she's gone into this presence of Awa and she's basically been essentially like Jesus <laughs> out of somebody's womb. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe it's midichlorians. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. I, please don't be midichlorians. But I'm, but I'm fascinated by seeing how that plays out, you know, and watching her connection with the spirit of the planet continue yeah. and, and learning about what that means. Yeah. I, I also wanted to point that, out
0: real quick. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that in general, the philosophy and the spirituality of this was really kind of cool. This is one thing I'd like to go personally go back when this hits VOD And just walk through it and kind of understand the, the nature of all this. I mean, I know it's a lot of kind of, I would call it universalist or, um, more philosophical and spiritual in nature, not specifically a belief system that is tied to maybe Buddhism, things like that. But I'd like to be able to see how Cameron handles that aspect of Avatar That's what I think is is challenging and what he set up and why I think he is an effective writer-director for this particular franchise is that he does have a map laid out. And he's got these – it's almost like he's got these layers, not only of stories, but layers of concepts that he's really putting in this second movie. You've got – military you've got the physical conflict you've got the emotional conflict but you've also got this world of spiritual and emotional and philosophical that is just starting out and i think that's why Kiri exists to kind of be the catalyst for explaining that for giving us more about what is what is awa we find out that awa is not just a tree in the forest that awa actually exists in another clan underwater and that Are there multiple Awas? Is this like a temple? Is this like, you know, arms of, is there a a big Awa in the middle of Pandora? I don't know. I mean, if we get to see more clans, do they all have their own Ewa and can she connect to all of them? So all of those questions I think are really interesting and really would be fun to flesh out
1: as we get into the sequels moving forward. Agreed wholeheartedly. I also just want to quickly shout out because I didn't talk about it when we were mentioning Colonel Quaritch and his crusade against Jake Sully. I I just love the overall depiction of the Marines as avatars and this whole like group of them. But the scene that was maybe like top three overall scenes in this movie for me was when he goes to claim an E-Clan and. He's about. He's look. They they climbed up to the top, and they're they're looking at them. Those are the bird creatures, and they're looking at him over the horizon with the marines there and spiders there. And he's like, "All right, so so I just do blah blah blah." And spiders like, Jake did it with his hands because the the marines like got his gun out ready to like <laughs> gonna drink gonna it, stun the thing. And he's it's like, "Gonna stun the thing." Yeah. Jake Sully did it with his hands, and you the look on his face is like, "Oh no, <laughs> I'm doing this." The he I think what he says is he says. Jake did it the hard way. Okay. Well, well, I'm doing it the hard way, you know? And then, yeah. <laughs> and he goes in there and he does, and he like falls off the cliff. Right. And like, just fly, like you think he's plummeting to his death. And that scene, when he comes back up, this is part, this is part of why I think there's going to be an arc for that character that is really engaging beyond what it is now, which I think it works in this movie so well. And in the first movie so well, because he is just a real true villain like he just hates this dude and wants to kill him like there it with with all oh, whatever collateral damage like there is no morality to him other than get this revenge for this wrong that has been enacted upon me and that is compelling to me in a movie but i see these like sprinklings of things that tell me he he's going to have a change and that was one of them cuz when he comes up man there is a genuine like pride and joy on his face the way that he was able to accomplish this thing and he is connected to this animal and you know and like i don't think that's something that you can do plug into them and have those connections with them and then just not be changed by it i think we're gonna see that start to take form over yeah. the next few sequels
0: that was something that i picked up on too was the fact that i think the fact that he is physically connected to this creature he makes a comment later that says, in order to be a part of the Navi, we have to start walking like them, talking like them, acting like them. And it starts with the language. And there's this really great small moment with him and Spider. They're on the the creature and he's trying to talk and he sounds like he's saying the right thing. And Spider's like, no, it's... He's like, oh, so it's like like in the back of my throat. And it's just, it's it's a small moment and it's funny. And you see... Spider sort of being a little bit vulnerable with with him, and he's being a little bit vulnerable because he's recognizing, hey, it's not as easy. I mean, it's not like a you know an ah uh, moment, but it's something. And I think that that's what you're hint what you're getting at, is that the longer he is in this body, the longer that he is having to speak the language and adapt, his journey will not be like Jake Sully's. But it will be something that, with the influence of his potential son, I guess we'll call it, that having an effect will make him feel like, not just feel, but become Na'vi in spirit. Become Na'vi in understanding to an extent. There will always be a human disconnect there, a sky person disconnect, because he is an avatar. This is not his body. But this movie illustrates that immersion can lead to connection. And I think that's what we're gonna get throughout the rest. I I love the design of the military folks too. I think what I was laughing at in my head was how are they finding how are they finding large enough shirts and pants (laughs) and and like body suits, body armor for these what, like ten foot tall creatures to wear (laughs) it's just it's something that no it wasn't anything like negative but i was like i mean did you have you had to craft that this is not like you you found like an enlarger like machine that you were like all right let's make it avatar size but I, i mean i think that's cool you have this human quality i think one of them was like chewing bubble gum and when one of them had like a like a hat on i mean that was what we saw in in the first one i thought that was kind of a clever way to differentiate true navi from from avatars and it was a nice carryover into this one
1: yeah, I completely agree. I thought that was a good little touch, too. Just giving them the human-like qualities and personalities within those Na'vi bodies are yeah, fun to see and interact with. Well, I think that's it. I mean, I, I guess we could probably go on forever, but I don't have anything else major. To, well, I do have one more, I should say. One question for you, which was one of the big questions of the movie, and whether or not you agree with Jake Sully when he starts off this movie or when he ends this movie after he's experienced the loss of his son which saw coming from a mile away uh, but still sad he leaves the forest clan with the idea of i have to protect my family and keep them safe that is the main priority in life and he specifically says though something akin to those words and he sort of regrets it at the end and he is saying to at that point, it's not about just protecting my family. That's not living. We have to fight. Did you come down like emotionally on either side of that? Like wh- what would how would you feel if Colonel Quarish was hunting you and your family? Would you have tried to stay and fight in the forest where you were comfortable? Or would you have run off and endangered a new culture that you didn't know those people or what do you think was the right call well
0: i would say that the end result is that he learned something that you can't run away you have to fight but it was at the cost of two or three villages being burned to the ground he even says at one point or asked the question was anybody killed that's great jake i'm glad that you're concerned about people's lives but you've now usurped them and now they're discovered this is an indigenous people who were fine not being discovered and not being discovered by sky people. But what I also know and what the story tells us is that those people would have been discovered anyway, because you had that science vessel and that hunting vessel that were out there anyway. I don't know if they were that close to the water people before Quaritch and his folks ingratiate themselves onto the ship. But to answer your question, it's it's selfish. I mean, you have to think about your people. You have to think about your clan at that point. This is something that I think Cameron sets up really well, which is the importance of a clan. He also sets up this idea that clans can work together. They couldn't before. And so the end result is that now you have what I would consider a stronger force. You now have water people and forest people that could now unite to fight whatever the bigger conflict is. But at the time, all Jake Sully was doing with his family is just leading people to a new crew. And he was still the target. And so they became collateral damage because Quaritch was pissed that he was still around and he needed to destroy him. If he knew that, you find some place that's not with indigenous people. Because what are you asking of them that you're not asking of the forest people? That, that was kind of my big takeaway is what does this group, this clan have that's going to make you better besides hiding you that the people in the forest are not. So I don't know that I necessarily agree with his decision-making or the why, but we're left with a resolution that said it's actually a better thing because the, the, the water people needed him. They needed to, they needed to be able to expand. They needed to be able to adapt and to learn just like he did. And so I think he's bringing clumsily <laughs> a new set of skills and capabilities and growth that this people will need because the fact is an enemy is out there and they would have eventually been discovered. So the, the bigger picture is that I think the end result is great. It's a good thing, but his initial decision to protect his family, the method in which he went to do that was stupid, personally.
1: Yeah. I really like how you just put that clumsily. I think that is perfect. Because you're absolutely right. The fight was coming to them eventually, whether they liked it or not. I mean, they already were killing the toolcan, right? And they were misinterpreting the death of the toolcan and acting on it by isolating Piacan because They didn't understand what happened. And Jake is able to, through the experiences, it's not like he brings them this knowledge, like he's coming with this big scroll of like, here, let me teach you about the ways of the world and what is happening. He's doing it for (laughs) selfish reasons. He's trying to find a way out of the situation to pretend like it's not happening so he and his family can just go on living, which is incredibly naive. And I think he knew better. And that makes it a little bit, sad because he does put them at risk ultimately be knowingly i believe but you're right that's why the clumsy word fits so well he ultimately it's a it's going to be for the benefit in the long run and when we get that moment at the end where you know he and the the chief are like uniting and understanding like they're coming together it just tells me we're setting it up for more like we're, we've, we've got that's another thing kate winslet is in this movie. Cliff Curtis is in this movie. Those are the two husband and wife of the Met Kain. Those are big name actors, especially Kate Winslet. And they're barely in this. They they just have a couple scenes. What does that tell you? That means that this is going forward, right? There, there is such a huge scope to this. And I got to tell you, man, like that just has me so jacked because it feels, it feels like an Infinity War saga, right? Like where... It, I haven't felt like this since being in the middle of that leading up to the Infinity War in game or the original Star Wars, you know, trilogy or, you know, something where we hadn't seen it recycled over and over and over yet. We were still in the midst of that first big storytelling experience. And I'm just here for it. I'm going along for the ride. I absolutely loved it. I loved watching it. I was, like you said, immersed. I thought it was visually stunning, emotionally connected to it, and and the action was awesome, and, and I can't wait for him to keep going. So I hope that it is plenty successful enough for that they just keep throwing the insane amounts of money that he needs to make these things at him so that we can keep getting them. And especially because James is still not, he's not super old, but he has basically said like he's just going to make Avatar movies until he dies. This is all we're going to get from him. So let's keep letting him give us the best possible versions of them that he can cuz yeah. he has not missed uh, you know for me he is i was looking at my rankings of him and the the star ratings and the how i react to these movies every single one of them is absolute top notch top tier film for me and ultimately amazing rewatchable for me so uh, he's a special guy and and i think that this just continues the streak
0: well for your sake i hope that's the case too i mean i will be on board with The sequels, they have not disappointed by any means. But I think I I said this after we finished up James Cameron month is that he is always almost great (laughs) in all of his movies. Like there's just something about each one of his movies that I'm like, "Uh, okay, but not enough for me to go. That was a bomb. Like everything I think about that he does from Titanic to Terminator 2, to Aliens, to to Avatar. All of these have a fantastic quality to them. And even The Abyss, to an extent, is probably one of my, if not my favorite Cameron movie. It still has its own patch issues. (laughs) There are things about it I'm like, yeah, okay. But it's not enough to deter me. And I think for someone who, as I get older, is just having more of a struggle with these longer movies... I just, I, I don't have the patience to enjoy them more than once. And and that's okay. I can enjoy them for what they are and be ready for the next entry. And that doesn't diminish his talent as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a director of people, a director of tech. So I'll I'll never say no to a Jim Cameron movie but I will probably say no to a Jim Cameron repeat <laughs> of a movie, unless it's, you know, unless it's within that two hour runtime. And I, I hate to be that kind of guy who's like, well, if it's less than you know if it's three hours, I'm not watching it, but that's just a lot of time. And so I'd have to really be fully invested in that story. And something's got to completely grab me for me to say, yeah, like Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, two and a half hours didn't feel like that to me. So Jim's Great, and I'll watch everything he does at least once, (laughs) maybe twice, if it's in my time frame. That's going to wrap up this edition of Feel and Film. Aaron, this is a fantastic conversation, as it always is. We're going from one sequel to another, so we're going to finish out the year enjoying Netflix's uh, Glass Onion, the sequel that we didn't know we needed, but we're glad we got it. I think you saw this when it hit the theaters, so I have not had any conversation with you, because I've intentionally avoided all the trailers and any subsequent dialogue about it. So I'm really excited to finish out the year with um, with this sequel and it sounds like a lot of fun. So be coming back for
1: that before you finish off the year.
0: That'll do it from us. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll
1: talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show Grow our community of listeners like you.
0: We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way.
1: If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Phelanfilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat.
0: And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Cheeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you.
1: Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive
0: and keep feeling filmed.